Welcome to Not Your Boyfriend's Sports Show. I'm Bryn. And I'm Maeve. This week on the show, soccer in scandal as FIFA's corruption is exposed. Plus, we check in with the NBA playoffs and baseball. Then, our feature this episode is the first in our two-part series on sports and domestic abuse. This week, the problem of domestic assault in sports, what it reflects about our societal structures, and where to start fixing it. Then, a very special microsports. So, Bryn, FIFA, let's talk about it. First off, what is it for the listeners out there, and what happened lately? Okay, so FIFA is the international governing body of soccer internationally. So Football? Worldwide. <laughs> um, and the huge news of the week is that on Tuesday night, nine high-ranking FIFA officials were arrested in Zurich on charges of bribery and racketeering, wire fraud, and money laundering. And they'll be extradited to the United States for trial in the next few months. Um, so this is this comes as no surprise to most people who yeah. follow soccer, as FIFA is one of the most corrupt organizations in the entire world, I would <laughs> argue. Yeah. Um, and if you haven't seen it, John Oliver has an amazing diatribe against them, and <laughs> we will post that on all of our social media outlets. But these officials were accused of taking bribes totaling more than $150 million dollars, and they, in turn, they provided a lot of kickbacks in terms of media and marketing benefits, as well as influencing the selection of South Africa for hosting the 2010 World Cup. Um, and there's been tons of debate about whether or not um, the upcoming World Cup placement in Qatar or Qatar, Qatar. <laughs> Qatar has been part of this bribery and I feel like at this point there's no doubt that it was so we'll see how that plays out. I thought one of the most impressive things about all of this scandal coming out is the fact that FIFA itself is basically a sovereign nation and it controls more than a billion dollars. And has no oversight. Yeah absolutely none. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And so the interesting thing about this is that FIFA president Sepp Blatter was not one of those arrested today. Um, and Attorney General, U.S. Attorney General Loretta Lynch said that the investigation is still ongoing. Yeah. She wouldn't comment specifically on Blatter, but I feel like charges against him might be forthcoming. So. Or he might have taken a sweetheart deal. That's true. We'll see. More to come on that, I'm sure. I hope we get to delve into all of the corruption of FIFA at a later date. Um, <laughs> but for now, we'll leave it at that and move on to the NBA playoffs. Yeah, what's happening there? Things are heating up. Definitely. Um, the Cleveland Cavaliers are going to the NBA Finals. Um, they swept their series against the Atlanta Hawks. And now they are um, in the finals, and this is LeBron's fifth straight NBA final appearance. Dang! Seriously, fifth that's straight? just astounding. Wow. The man can do no wrong. Um, and in the Western Conference, after going up three to nothing in the series, the Golden State Warriors lost game four to the Houston Rockets. And by the time this episode airs, the, the Warriors will either be set to face off against LeBron and the Cavs, or they'll be getting ready to play game six and try to finish off the Rockets once and for all. Um, regardless, the NBA Finals kick off on June 4th, so the Cavs will be getting a solid nine days of rest before the series begins. Well, baseball season's also getting into the swing of things. Maeve, what's going on over there? Yeah, there's definitely some competition that's starting to shape up. 
Uh, Houston right now has the best record in baseball, although Kansas City is right behind them. In the rest of the American League, the Red Sox, my original hometown team, did not have the stellar start I was hoping for, but I'm convinced that they're just playing the long game. Uh, They're in third behind the Yankees and the Tampa Bay Rays. And over in the National League, the St. Louis Cardinals are leading, but they've got some stiff competition in the rest of the league, if not their very own division. Our own Washington Nationals also got off to a slow start, but they've really turned things around lately. Bryce Harper has the most RBIs in baseball right now, and he is jockeying with Mariners outfielder Nelson Cruz for the most home runs. Our defense has really picked up, and Max Scherzer, do you remember him from our preview? I do, from Detroit. Yes, ace pitcher. He has not only been doing really great from the mound, but he's also started a sticky little tradition whereby instead of dumping Gatorade on teammates after games when they make a really awesome play, he's using chocolate syrup. (laughs) And his reasoning is basically chocolate syrup is the best ice cream topping, so it's the best thing to top off a good game. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I'm I'm with him on that. (laughs) Me too. Well, except I don't think chocolate syrup is the best topping, but I'm with the spirit of it. What would you go with? I like Reese's. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So Scherzer has done this whole interview about the chocolate syrup, which is where he laid out his reasons for loving it so much. Did he do it in Detroit or is this new? No, this is totally new. Amazing. So funny things that have been happening around it is number one, Hershey's sent him like 132 bottles of (laughs) of chocolate syrup to always have on hand. And second of all, they interviewed the people who take care of the uniforms. And they were like, so how has the chocolate syrup been impacting your job? And they were really upbeat and peppy about it and everything, but they were like, yeah, it takes about nine cycles of laundry to get the stains (laughs) out. I hope like OxyClean sends them some like samples. (laughs) Well, I guess that their secret is this stuff that removes pine tar, but they can't really say it removes pine tar because pine tar is illegal in a lot of situations that wouldn't look good so they were just like yeah and then this other detergent (laughs) anyway so the nationals staff is also being impacted by the chocolate syrup bonanza that is awesome (laughs) i love it all right well let's take a quick break and then when we come back we will start our conversation about domestic abuse and sports Welcome back. Um, Before we get going, just a note that we will be discussing some sensitive issues surrounding physical and sexual abuse in this episode, so a trigger warning for all of our listeners. So in preparation for this episode, I kind of realized that there is no untimely time to talk about domestic abuse and domestic violence in sports, because just today, we're recording this on Monday, there was news that Chicago Bears defensive and Ray McDonald was arrested on domestic violence and child endangerment charges for assaulting a woman who was holding a baby. And this is his fifth arrest for charges involving violence against women. So he was like, he was previously with the 49ers and the Bears signed him earlier this year after, after McDonald flew out to meet with the Bears chairman and the chairman interviewed his parents and like had a really long conversation with him and came out of it basically like, I appreciated his sincerity and I feel confident that he's trying to improve himself and we'll give him a second chance. 
You but mean a fifth chance? Yeah, like a seventh chance? It's ridiculous. So the Bears signed him with no money guaranteed, thankfully, because they knew that he was a risk. And then today, a few hours after the news of the latest uh, domestic violence incident broke, the Bears released McDonald, um, and he's not going to get any money from them. But still, that goes to show a five-time offender, and he's still even in the running. Totally. And the GM of the Bears, Ryan Pace, was quoted in a release today saying, You know, we believe in second chances, but when we signed Ray, we were really clear about our expectations if he was to remain a bear. Um, He was not able to meet the standard, and the decision was made to release him. So, well, I think that that's absolutely the right decision. It's the only thing they could do. I'm, like, bothered by the language that's used to report on incidents like this. Like, it strikes me as intentionally vague and, like, in that entire Bears press release, they never mentioned the woman. They never mentioned the violence that he displayed. I just feel like we can't forget that he was arrested for physically assaulting a woman who was holding a kid. We should be able to speak more openly about what's actually happening. Like seeing Ray Rice's assault on camera. I feel like that's the only way that we're going to like bring more humanity to the issue. And instead of just hearing his name along with the... like oh, he couldn't live up to the standard that it takes to be a Chicago bear. Like, let's be real, this man assaulted a woman multiple times. Well, I think that this whole issue of language also speaks to some of the storyline of Ray Rice. So just to remind listeners, back in February of last year, Ray Rice knocked out his then-fiancé, now-wife, Janae Palmer, in an Atlantic City elevator. And a couple months later, video of Rice dragging Palmer's limp body out of the elevator was published by gossip website TMZ. It was awful. So I think at this point, there's we sort of just think of the Ray Rice incident as one incident, but it really, the whole story came out over a matter of months. So there was this initial video of just outside the elevator. And at that point, Uh, NFL commissioner Roger Goodell initially suspended Rice for just two games, which drew a lot of criticism at the time because it was much less than, say, your typical drug violation. Yeah. And uh, going back to your comment about the language that's used around these things, both the NFL and the Baltimore Ravens, including head head coach Harbaugh, uh, publicly stood by Rice and made allusions to his character and things of that nature. Uh, A little while later, a second video was released from inside the elevator that showed Rice actually punching out Janae. And it's very gruesome and it's very graphic. And it's understandable why there was such public outcry after this video as well. And it was at this point that Rice was released from the Ravens and suspended indefinitely from the NFL. Side note, he's now been reinstated Uh, And there are rumors that he'll sign with the Raiders, but that's sort of for another episode. Um, The point is that this whole uh, situation really ignited a deep examination into sports and domestic abuse and the teams and the leagues and the systems that tried to keep one separate from the other. Yeah. I mean, and Ray Rice is the best and most recent example of a case where the NFL's ultimate punishments are effectively ending his career or it'll never be the same career that it was going to be but there are lots and lots of examples of people who have been accused or charged with domestic violence 
but who have been able to go on to successful careers and managing to maintain a reputation that like doesn't immediately call to mind their domestic violence history. So let's run through a few examples because <laughs> these are ones like I forget. So Brett Favre has been accused of sexual harassment twice, most recently for inappropriate behavior toward two massage therapists. Oh, yeah. um, he sent texts basically suggesting that they have a threesome and soliciting sex. Um, And before that, he had been fined $50,000 in 2010 for leaving inappropriate voicemails for a game day reporter for the Jets. Yeah. And we should point out that, like, Brett Favre makes $50,000 in about five minutes of play. So that punishment was (laughs) So this was back before the NFL had reassessed their policies toward domestic abuse. Yep. And then there's Kobe Bryant, who, you know, if you think hard enough about him, you'll come up with like, oh, there was some charge at some point, right? But he was accused of sexually assaulting a 19-year-old hotel employee in 2003. He maintains that it was consensual. He acknowledges that they did have sex, but he maintains his innocence of assault. And then the charges were eventually dropped when his accuser refused to testify and Kobe basically came out with a public apology saying, although I truly believe this encounter between us was consensual, I recognize that she did not and does not view this incident the same way I did. <laughs> After months of reviewing Discovery, listening to her attorney and even her testimony in person, I now understand how she feels that she did not consent to this encounter. Like how she feels that she did not consent to this encounter. Yeah. Still, this issue of language and the language that's used surrounding athletes yeah it's really interesting i mean and at the time like kobe lost sponsorships and his reputation was really damaged but i don't think that that's a main part of his lasting legacy at all no i mean today you're still just talking about kobe in terms of is he one of the greats is he better than lebron is he better than jordan if you put him up against jordan in their heyday who would win out but one person who um, whose name is basically synonymous with domestic violence is Floyd Mayweather, who we talked about two episodes ago um, during his fight against Pacquiao. So Floyd Mayweather has over the years been accused of or charged with numerous domestic violence encounters. But because boxing doesn't really have the type of regulatory structure to punish Mayweather or suspend him from the sport, he's mm. still one of the most lauded boxers that there is. And he's, he made nearly $200 million from this last fight with Pacquiao. So while everyone is very much aware of his history, it's really not, yeah. not punishing him in any real way. Well, I think that this idea of what's the correct punishment is interesting because when we look at women's sports, uh, Brittany Griner and Glory Johnson are two star WNBA players who were engaged to each other when they were arrested and charged in April for assault and disorderly conduct after they got in a fight. Um, They are now married. Hmm. Griner pleaded guilty and agreed to participate in a 26-week domestic abuse program, and both women were served with seven-game suspensions from the WNBA. So this zero-tolerance policy of the WNBA is being applauded, especially because Griner and Johnson are some of the biggest stars, which really means money makers in the league, in this league that doesn't make a lot of money to begin with. Yeah. And this really stands in sharp contrast to how virtually any domestic abuse situation in men's pro- professional sports is handled, which basically operate 
on if there's no video, it might not have happened. Yeah, it really seems like the WNBA was like prepared and handed down the fun- the punishment like right away. Yeah. It seems crazy that all the other leagues are like waffling on this issue and the WNBA, who sees so few of these cases, just immediately stepped up. Yeah, and uh, another example is Hope Solo, who is, of course, the goalkeeper for the women's national soccer team. And she was charged with domestic abuse involved her half-sister and her nephew, although the charges were later dropped. And there were some articles written in the aftermath of this, which basically had a similar point to what you just said about, you know, isn't it hypocritical and unfair that Hope Solo doesn't receive the same punishment as professional men's players, and that especially as a female sports star, the Women's League has this big responsibility to dole out punishment. And... Amanda Hess, who's a a writer at Slate, wrote a pretty eloquent response to this commentary, saying that this line of argument really misses an enormous amount of context, beginning with the NFL's kind of brush it under the rug approach. And it also ignores wider cultural trends whereby men are more often the perpetrators of domestic abuse against typically intimate partners. Yeah. Um, and that they exert a significant emotional, social, and financial control over their victims. And so, yes, there are male victims of domestic abuse, and it should be treated seriously. But to compare Hope Solo to Ray Rice or women's soccer to the NFL, she argues is a really false comparison and misdirects attention from the very real and often institutionalized structures in which dozens and dozens of male athletes keep playing and keep getting paid despite their involvement in domestic abuse. So, yes, let's debate if Hope Solo should keep playing, but don't pretend like this is on the same scale as what we're facing with men's professional sports. Yeah, absolutely not. And we just don't see as many instances of it. You know, the one that comes to mind when I think about um, sports and sexual assault is the Jameis Winston case. Yeah. And just to recap the basics of that case, Jameis Winston was a star quarterback for Florida State and the eventual Heisman Trophy winner and national champion. But in 2012, Jameis was accused of raping a woman after he shared a cab with her. And according to the victim's lawsuit, at one point, Winston's friend even interrupted the incident and said, dude, she's telling you to stop, which is, you know, the lawsuit that she filed. So there's obviously dispute about that. But the lawsuit has been passed off as a publicity stunt over and over at various points throughout this really long, drawn-out process because Jameis was the quarterback at the time and he was a huge public figure in Florida. And there's there was just a ton of mismanagement of the case by the Tallahassee Police Department. And they've come under fire for, you know, a detective at one point told the victim that, that Tallahassee was a big football town and that she should think long and hard before proceeding against Winston because her life will be made miserable if she pursues these charges. So... Yeah, so I think that this case is interesting because it highlights some of the main structural issues that protect athletes who are accused of sexual assault instead of the victims. And we've alluded to some of these themes in this discussion so far in our examples, but this case in particular, it includes the university, the police, the community, and our larger societal misconceptions about rape and sexual assault. So a lot of this was outlined in in a pretty expansive investigation by the New York Times, But for starters, the police really botched this investigation from beginning to end, 
besides the sort of threats that you just described, they failed to follow up on obvious leads, like interviewing Winston himself. They gave him a heads up so that he was able to get legal counsel before he ever spoke to anybody. They failed to get the cell phone records of him and his roommates, one of whom later admitted to taking a video of the encounter, which he then later claimed to delete. They didn't contact the taxi driver. And then, and this was maybe the most surprising of all, the police concluded that the case was closed because the victim was unwilling to cooperate both of which are untrue according to the victim and her lawyer. And secondly, members of the athletic department failed to notify school administrators when they learned early on about the accusations. The university itself didn't open the investigation until after the championship football season was over and Winston was a Heisman Trophy winner. This is all in violation of Title IX. It's also happening during a time when colleges and universities are being investigated across the country for their failure to handle sexual assault complaints. And the police department and the university have a tangled and mutually beneficial relationship, whereby a member of the Booster Club who was assigned to look into the case, the Booster Club also pays part of the university president's salary. So it's not like they're an independent uh, viewer. And then this also plays into this sort of culture of reverence that existed in this football town. And this often puts accusations of rape behind the priorities of a winning season, which we saw a lot of instances in this case where that was happening. People were concerned about the implications for Jameis himself, for the team, for the championship. And not that this only happens in college football, but it certainly happens a lot in communities where there aren't a lot of other uh, sports teams to root for, where where college, where the university is really a central kind of gathering place. And lastly, rape and sexual assault are vastly underreported on a large scale. Some estimates say that only 40% of rapes are reported. And even if charges are brought, very few people actually go to jail for rape, often because at some point the victim stops cooperating or doesn't testify which isn't surprising given the emotional and mental tolls of going through this process. Yeah. And lastly, false accusations of rape, which was at play here, are even more rare. Estimates say that about 2 to 8% of those rapes that are reported are false accusations. And, I mean, this is on my own personal note, but I think that given society's penchant to sort of blame the victim and the very emotional and often traumatizing process of having to relive the situation in court facing your accuser it's not something that you would want to do on a whim i would think certainly Um, not yeah and especially when it's a high profile athlete who has some of the best resources at his disposal who's a popular public figure i just think that to to accuse somebody of of falsely accusing somebody else of rape is a pretty heavy accusation to make there are just so few incentives to go down that route Yeah, so I just thought that this case hit a lot of the high notes of the challenges of what structural systems we've put in place to actually protect the athlete. Yeah, it definitely does. And and that makes me think about, um, you know, there's been a lot of debate about how the NFL should be punishing these these people that are accused and and convicted of domestic violence and how the NFL's punishments should complement those of the legal system. 
you know, whether or not all of the charges are followed through with and there is a legal system punishment, should the NFL still act? Yeah. Should the NFL ban the players? You know, I've heard arguments on both sides. But one of the ones I heard more recently that I really liked and connected with called for teams and the league at large to absorb more of the responsibility for the actions of repeat offenders, meaning that instead of just handing down individual punishments, there should also be some kind of on-field or team-wide punishments to make sure that teams don't have an incentive to pick up players with a history of domestic violence. Because right now, if a player who has a history of domestic violence, if they get in trouble again, then it really doesn't hurt the team. They're just down a player. If the, the NFL was to put together a list similar to the one that they keep of players who have abused substances in the past Mm -hmm. whereby you know if a player has one instance of domestic violence they're on this list and if it happens again then the entire team will be punished maybe by like giving up a draft pick or Mm -hmm. something else that affects their season affects the entire team and not just that one player yeah so I like the idea that a rule of this kind could change the culture, sort of incentivize teams to do more domestic violence prevention, mm-hmm. education, counseling, whatever the players need in order to invest in their players, have them become better people if possible. <laughs> like That it would change the culture of the league and not just try to change the individuals. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I think that this is also interesting when you compare the policies toward drugs. And I know that you had looked into that a little bit. Um, Prior to this change in the um, NFL's code of conduct, which happened earlier this year, um, the suspensions for drugs and substance abuse were much harsher than the personal conduct suspensions. Right. So players would be suspended for three, four, or five games for drug offenses, whereas the average was 1.5 games suspended for a personal conduct yeah. um, abuse. So, And I guess that part of that argument to play devil's advocate about drugs is that some of those drugs might be performance-enhancing drugs, and right. so you're thereby throwing off the fairness of the game. But I think my response to that which we'll also get into a little bit later, is that sports can be bigger than just a game. And to try to separate one sort of violation over another just sets priorities that have proved to be very out of whack. And when you are going to be a community leader, which is what a lot of these teams try to prove to be, especially when they get certain tax breaks, when they try to build new stadiums, when they talk about how they're such a good source for employment and local businesses, then, you know, that comes with a whole list of things that you need to be a community leader in. And it doesn't just come down to winning and losing games. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and to that point, I think the NFL has, like you were saying, their priorities are sometimes so arbitrary. I mean, in D.C., I look at the Washington Redskins. I'm like going to a Washington Redskins game and seeing fans in Indian headdresses and like in red face it's just so alarming to me that that still exists and it's almost like the NFL stadium or you know sports culture in general is this like alternate reality where these lifelong fans are just so resistant to change that they're not evolving in the same way that like our wider culture is evolving and that it becomes a safe haven for for kind of your worst impulses. But yeah. it's okay because 
you know, it's a boys club. Right. There's just so much bigotry, so much misogyny that doesn't get nipped in the bud because yeah. it's this fantasy land where what a player does off the field shouldn't affect what happens on the field. Right. And what happens in the stadium is not really seen as politically incorrect because it's in this little bubble. Right. And I think that Katie Nolan, who uh, hosts Garbage Time on Fox Sports, Love her. She made a really great point and actually spoke a lot to something that I've battled with, which is she says that when she tries to reconcile her morals and beliefs with her football fandom, or read that more broadly as sports fandom, she says it's not realistic to simply boycott football because there are too many people, like you were saying, who would just keep watching football and so you would never get to that critical mass that would have an actual financial impact. Yeah. And... Even worse, she says, that by boycotting football, you would eliminate the critical voices which are so necessary to change. And so she basically made this point that the NFL isn't going to take women seriously until the sports media takes women seriously. And then Swin Cash, who's a WNBA player, had a really great quote to this effect. She said, not just the players, the owners, administrators, agents, everyone that is making money off of the NFL needs to be held accountable for domestic violence. If they start there, everyone else will fall in line because they have that much power. So I think that this once again speaks to this notion of you have a greater responsibility, you have to be a, set a better example, set better standards. And I think that all of these points could really be extended beyond sports to our culture at large, that we have to work until the systems that we have in place to correctly and fairly deal with the difficult tasks that are assigned to them are working properly and it's critical to have enough women, minorities, diversity in order to make those systems a true representation of the population that they serve. Yeah. And I mean, as terrible as the last year has been in terms of domestic violence cases and all these horrible stories that have come out in the media, like I do appreciate that we're now starting to get people talking about it. It felt like some of that sweeping under the rug is not going to fly anymore. And there are enough female sports journalists or just commentators. Yeah, yeah. Just commentators who care, who are speaking out about this, trying to um, overhaul the NFL and the other league systems and yeah. get us headed in the right direction. So at least opening the dialogue is helpful. Yeah, you know, and I think that this sort of harkens back to what we were talking about with the sports apparel episode and, you know, having all the pink apparel. It's great to start the conversation, but where does the conversation go from there? Yeah. And so I hope that teams, leagues, fans use this as an opportunity to really put down some hard and fast rules and regulations about what is going to be acceptable in order to have the privilege to play in these leagues. And finally, I think that these leagues have an incredible opportunity and platform to speak to a really broad audience, particularly of young men and boys, and to establish what character is, and to recognize that it's not only the players who have a huge privilege in doing what they do, it's also everybody who covers sports, everybody who's an agent, everybody who's a manager, all the way up to Roger Goodell himself, and that they need to recognize their own privilege in this and think about what they want to communicate to the audience that is so wrapped. Yeah, absolutely. Instead of building up individual athletes as idols, like it should be every single person 
making little incremental steps to show what a role model should be and to have a positive influence on the spectators of the sport. And so on that note, next week we're going to discuss the efforts that leagues have been taking, especially in the past year, to try to reconnect and re-engage with a lot of female fans who have been uh, very disillusioned uh, by their teams. So more to come on that coming next episode. So let's take a break here. And when we come back, it is a very, very special segment of Microsports. Welcome back. We are here this week with a very special edition of Microsports. 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 <laughs> because Bryn has finished her marathon. Yay! So I know listeners out there, you've been, you know, dying to hear how it all turned out. So Bryn, why don't you give us a little background? Where did you go running? What was the deal? Um, so I went for a nice 26.2 mile <laughs> jog. Just a casual light <laughs> run. We drove up to Maine and ran in um, at the Sugarloaf Marathon. So it's in the Carabasset Valley in Maine. It was gorgeous. Sounds lovely. Um, it was also very hot mm. and in direct sunlight. So that was rather unfortunate. Well, you did get a little sunburned, I noticed. Yep, I got a little peeling action going on now. All right, but no pain, no gain? Was it, was it all worth it? Um, I will say that I was surprised to feel that the feeling of accomplishment felt equivalent to the training. I would say it was worth it. Okay. But it was probably the hardest thing I've ever done. What was so hard about it? I mean, besides the obvious. <laughs> um, well, just the way in which pain came in waves was pretty interesting. Huh. Like, mile 15, I had foot pain, and then mile 20, my legs started cramping. So it's just, you know, the evolution of pain was... Uh, fascinating. And was that pain that you had also felt in your training? Not at all. Not at all. No, this was all new pain. So you, uh, as much as you prepare, there are always going to be fun surprises at the race. Well, I mean, maybe it's because I'm not so tapped into runner's world or anything like that, but I feel like anytime you hear about people running marathons, it's just, oh, what a rush and what a sense of accomplishment. And I've never felt better. And so when you originally were telling me about your experience, it was actually kind of refreshing to hear like, no, this is a difficult thing to do. And yeah. it takes a lot of training and perseverance. I would say like coming to the end of the race and seeing people come in after me and just looking at the sheer amount of people. And this was a pretty small race. I just kept thinking like, I cannot believe that this many people choose to do this. Yeah. Like it felt crazy. Yeah. So... I don't know. I just, I don't know if I recommend it. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to do it again. But I would say, like, in terms of having something, having a long-term goal and working up to it, I think it was, like, a very good exercise in willpower and some perseverance thrown in there. Yeah, and especially, I think, in adulthood, when we're sort of done with high school sports, done with college sports, setting a goal, an athletic goal at least, is sort of fewer and farther between. Yeah. So I think that it's a very good 
milestone if you need a milestone it's just something that can build you up in ways that you're not going to get tested by your work or your yeah friends or your life otherwise so well uh I know that you listen to a lot of podcasts while you run, so do you want to tell the listeners in a little bit of podcast love what your favorite episode you listened to during your marathon was? Yeah, let's see. I was listening to, um, well, some not sports-related ones. Call we are your... well-rounded individuals. <laughs> Our fairy pod mothers call your girlfriend. Love them. So if you're not listening yet, listen now. They're the best. Um, so I listened to Call Your Girlfriend. I listened to the Daily Show podcast without Jon Stewart. <laughs> um, I listened to Spain and Prim, who are two awesome female sports reporters. Word. Who have their own podcast. I listened to SVP and Rosillo, whose podcast I listen to every single day. <laughs> and now they're going off the air and I'm going to cry. Uh. Um, I guess you won't run anymore either then. No, I mean, yeah, I guess they they lasted as long as I needed them, so. And then I listened to the Remember the Titans soundtrack. <laughs> so that was helpful. That's awesome. Oh, man. Well, if there were ever anything to get you pumped up. Some um, spirit in the sky. It was great. All right. Well, I think that about does it for this week. Where can they find us? You can find us on Facebook at Not Your Boyfriend Sports Show, on Twitter and Instagram at NYBF Sports, and you can shoot us an email. Our Gmail is nybfsports at gmail.com, and we are on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please go. Please rate us. Please leave nice comments. We like to hear that. We've really gotten that part down. Yeah, we have. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good game, friend. Good game, babe. <laughs>